Hey everyone and welcome to this special podcast from Ossert's 2013 conference on the Gold Coast. I'm Patrick Gray. This podcast is brought to you by Sothos, security made simple, Datacom TSS, discreet, niche, tailored, and bugcrowd.com, outsourced bug bounty programs. The following is a recording of the traditional closing event of the Ossert conference, the Speed Debate. It's hosted by Australian television and radio presenter Adam Spencer. And uh, it's a bit of light fun to end the whole thing on. Uh, debaters include Eugene Kaspersky, Bill Cayley, Charlie Miller, Scott McIntyre, and more. I'll drop you in here as Adam sets the whole thing up. Enjoy. It gives me great pleasure to again be presenting the Cert Speed Debate for 2013, our traditional conference closing session. It's become a bit of an institution in Cert. It's always a lot of fun. At the end of this session, you are going to be voting, or the end, sorry, throughout the session, you're going to be voting on the various debates you see. I've had it made clear to me that you just absolutely already have done. You're logging on to OzCert 2013, all lowercase.mobi. You've entered your password, which is capital A, lowercase US, capital C-E-R-T 13. That's there on your badges. All that, we're all know. Yeah, we're all logged in. We know how to vote on sessions, give feedback through the conference, that sort of stuff. Yes. Realistically, if you don't understand, I'm not going to be able to explain it to you, being the group that you are. Let's do it. Let's kick off by meeting our panellists as I introduce them, give them a big round of applause. This gentleman has some 47 years of experience in the ICT industry, some 37 years in all aspects of cybersecurity, including commercial cryptography. His PhD is in nuclear physics and high-speed data acquisition. Now, on just about any given occasion, being able to say my PhD is in nuclear physics and high-speed data acquisition is pretty much a guarantee that you're the biggest nerd in the room. But what I love about OzCert is that phrase, far from being a conversation killer, simply translates to, hey, I'm here amongst friends. He was a star in last year's debate. We had to have him back. It's his only presentation at OzCert this year. Give Bill Cayley a big round of applause. Come on up, Bill. Mark Fabro has actually checked out and left early, which is sad for two reasons. One, it's meant to have had to rapidly reconfigure the debate, and some people are speaking on topics they didn't know they were talking about until a few seconds ago. And uh, secondly, I had some hilarious jokes on SCADA that I had to get rid of, but I'm happy to share them with you after the session. Our third speaker is retired Marine Lieutenant Colonel William Hargestad II. He has simply the coolest name of anyone I've ever introduced at a conference. He says, call me Bill. No way, Bill. I'm calling you retired Marine Lieutenant Colonel William Hargestad II at every possible opportunity. Internationally recognised and respected authority on the People's Republic of China, use of computer information network systems as a weapon. He wrote the book 21st Century Chinese Cyber Warfare. He saw active service in Iraq and has received a Global War on Terrorism medal. I don't know what they are, but I presume they don't just give those away. In addition to multiple master's degrees in science and technology, he received a Bachelor of Arts in Mandarin Chinese, with minor emphasis in classical Chinese and modern Japanese from the University of Minnesota, which makes me think, Bill, why which loosely translates to, I wouldn't be able to speak a word of Mandarin if it wasn't for Google Translate. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> retired Marine, Lieutenant Colonel William Hargestad II. Our next speaker began studying computer viruses after detecting the Cascade virus on his computer in October 1989. He started collecting malicious programs and disinfection modules for them. Now, the database includes millions of records. It's one of the most complete antivirus databases in the world. In 1997, 
Eugene and his colleagues established the Kaspersky Lab. Today, the company is one of the world's four leading vendors of computer security software. A couple of years ago, I described him as one of my great geek man crushes of all time. Suffice to say, nothing has changed. Eugene Kaspersky, give him a round of applause. Great to see you again, Eugene. Our next debater used to work for America's National Security Agency, and he now works for Twitter. So essentially, he's gone from working on top-level encryption systems to protect the world from terrorism to making sure that everyone in the Western world has the right to tell their friends, hey, I just dropped my sandwich, LOL. He's also well known for his attacks on, uh, hacks on Apple products, so I'm sure he would have had fun watching our Apple CEO Tim Cook squirm on Capitol Hill this week, answering questions about Apple's uh, taxation arrangements. But for mine, the best question, you might have seen this from any of the senators, came from former Republican presidential candidate John McCain, who at the end of his fiscal grilling of, of, of Tim Cook, asked Tim Cook, and why the hell do I have to keep updating apps on my iPhone? End of question. We are very excited to have secured our next speaker, also the organizer have been trying for years to have him, Charlie Miller. Give him a round of applause. Anyone who's been to this debate before knows the work of Scott McIntyre, the Senior Technology Architect and Specialist in Security Operations for Telstra. He's based in Melbourne, a regular speaker at OzCert, a veteran of every single OzCert speed debate we've had. Now, in 2011, he proudly boasted that he stood in second spot in the queue out front of the Apple store for seven hours to get his iPad 2. Of course, in 2013, boasting about an iPad 2 is the equivalent of boasting that in your youth, you saw dinosaurs roaming the earth. But... One thing that has become traditional at the speed debate is acknowledging the reality that Scott does his best thinking within reach of a cocktail. Each year we've been happy to oblige and provide him with his choice of cocktails. So fittingly this year, he's dispensed with the better known cocktails of years past, the Brazilian Caparinha from 2012, for example. 2011, I think, might have been a vodka martini. Well, this year he's outdone himself. This year Scott has requested a cocktail known as the Odd McIntyre. 20 mils each of cognac, Cointreau, lemon, and Lille Blanc. Now, those not familiar with Lille Blanc, it's a French aperitif wine, 85% Bordeaux wine, Sauvignon Blanc, Sauvignon Muscadel, 15% macerated liqueurs, typically citrus liqueurs from the peels of sweet oranges from Spain and Morocco, and the peels of bitter green oranges from Haiti. I think from the French into English, Lille Blanc translates loosely as, wow, this guy's a bit of a wanker. Anyway... Give him a big round of applause. Here to consume his Lille Blanc and entertain us all, Scott McIntyre. There you are, Thank sir. Thank you very much, sir. Enjoy. This guy is a return Ossert speed debater and a world-renowned expert on security system design and implementation. Recognised as an early innovator in firewall technology, he's renowned as the implementer of the first commercial bastion-host firewall product. You don't need me to tell you that was the Digital Equipment Corporation Secure External Access Link, the SEAL, later the Alta Vista Firewall. He was the 2005 Techno Security Professional of the Year. And hey, if that doesn't impress the ladies, I don't know what will. Before I crack that joke, I probably should have read his entire CV because it lists here as his hobbies, Marcus enjoys photography and firearms. Please welcome Marcus Ranham, ladies and gentlemen. And you would not be able to have a conference like Ossert without the valued support of conference sponsors, so we are very excited to have a couple of representatives of our platinum sponsors on today's panel. Symantec is a platinum sponsor of Ossert 2013, so we invited Adrian Kovic.
to join the panel. He's head of Symantec Doc Cloud's System Engineering Technical Sales Organisation for Australia and New Zealand, covering sales engineering and technical account management. He's just agreed at short notice to speak on one topic today that he says, quote, I have absolutely no idea about, end quote. Your task is working out which one of those it is. Give Adrian a big round of applause. Come on up here, Adrian. And our final speaker, Good Technology is a platinum sponsor of OzSuit. We'd originally invited Jim Watson from Good Technology to join our panel. He was the Vice President Global uh, Corporate General Manager. Unavailable, nominated as his replacement, a gentleman called Ross Ford. Now, I'll be honest, finding biographical information about Ross proved a bit more difficult than I'd expected. After a fair period of looking around online, all I could find was this, a single note on his LinkedIn page that, quote, he's in charge of overview, government and defence account director, end quote. I get what's going on. He's a mystery man drafted into this debate at the last minute with scarce biographical details available. Defence account director. Clearly, Ross doesn't want me getting too close to the truth. I'll be honest, Ross, given that you're looking at me right now like that, I'm backing off. There is nothing to see here. Move on. Ross Ford, come to the stage. Give me a round of applause. Now, if you haven't seen one of these speed debates before, they're an institution, Ross, that they are a lot of fun, but they are fairly hectic. Just like a high school debate, there's a topic and there's three speakers on each side. But unlike your high school debates, they speak for literally only one minute each. Okay? So instead of the debating, you know, for the debating purists, this can be a bit of a shock. You dispense with the traditional definition, the allocation of arguments throughout the team, the finely crafted case that is built up speaker by speaker. In that place, we have six 60-second flurries of ideas, stream of consciousness rants with arguments often tripping over each other in a race to escape the larynx of the speaker. But what we might lack in standard debating clarity, we more than make up for in both energy and quantity, because today we will be debating not one, but six topics. Six six-minute debates on everything from hacktivism to smartphones, from espionage to Bitcoin. This is the fourth time we've done it in Ossert, and for someone who's been to all four of them, we have a twist coming here that even you will not see coming. Let's kick off the Ossert 2013 speed debating. Gentlemen, you have one minute per topic as I announce it. Our first topic is that hacktivists make the world a better place. Hacktivists make the world a better place the affirmative team will be Bill Cayley, Scott McIntyre, Charlie Miller. The negative, Adrian Kovic, Eugene Kaspersky and Marcus Ranham. You will be voting on this, ladies and gentlemen, so have your apps at the ready. Take it away. Hacktivists make the world a better place. Bill Cayley. Absolutely no argument. Everything else has totally failed. 45 years ago, a lovely friend of mine, Dr Willis Ware of Rand Corporation, produced the first ever cybersecurity report for the US Army and what happened after that? Practically nothing. Nine, eight, hey, by the way, 1983, 30 years ago, what happened? Orange Book! Orange Book! We're supposed to all have secure systems now. Secure systems, absolutely. 10 years ago, or 20 years ago, 92. C2 by 92. All government procurement, US, absolutely secure. C2 by 92. Oh, by the way, any Air Force guys here? You didn't like that. You had B2 by 95. You didn't like the C2. You liked B2 by 95. So, 10 years ago, Microsoft Palladium. What happened to Palladium? Any Microsoft guys? Well, I rest my case beautifully. Without the hackers, the industry has done absolutely, oh, I won't swear, but you understand what I would say, 
with three letters, an S, an F and an A. Thank you very much. Thank you, Bill. Great stuff. Loved it. Loved the passion. Feel free to use the microphone next time that's clearly sitting in front of you on the table. Hello. There you go. A traditional voice projection instrument that might come in handy. But anyway, <laughs> now to lead off the negative. Take it away, Adrian Kovic. Thank you, Bill, for the, uh, the history lesson. That was much appreciated. Although, of all the things that, that Bill talked about, uh, I can't think of a single one of those that I can look at and say has made the world a better place. Uh, the orange book sounded, sounded great, um, and as did the other RAND Corporation anecdotes, but when we look at what hacktivists do uh, and why they do it, I don't see the logic in being able to say they make the world a better place. I can't brag and say that I made my next-door neighbour's uh, security better and, that, and his uh, window, window glass thicker simply because I threw a brick through it last week. And I can't say that well, uh, I made your tyres safer because you had to replace them because I put a, a nail through them to test how thick they were. There are proper accords, there are proper ways of identifying security uh, vulnerabilities and there are proper channels to make that happen. If you want to make the world a better place, you know, uh, start up an animal shelter. If you want to make the better place, do some research. But don't go and break other people's property. It's not the way to make it better. Great stuff, Adrian Kovic. Thank you very much. Hope you're listening. You'll be voting soon. Scott McIntyre, hacktivists make the world a better place. You agree? I do, actually. Funny you should mention. Um, those of you who know me know that I used to work for a small ISP in the Netherlands known as Access for All, which is really a huge foundation of hacktivists, people who were looking to make the world a better place. That was something that I was proud to be a part of. We fought the Church of Scientology, and we won. We sued the government over the cost of lawful interception, and we won. Hacktivists isn't purely malicious behavior. It isn't purely throwing the rock through the window. It's about giving a voice to people who may not have a voice in a time that's about digital items, digital discussions. In a lot of communities, just think of uh, Egypt a couple of years ago, where you had whole groups of people that were essentially hacktivists that were using the online medium in order to organize, in order to get a voice out there, in order to express themselves. Yes, sometimes the methods might look like they cause a bit of damage, but we need to have these checks and balances. We need to stay on our toes. Those of us who are defending against the types of threats that are out there need the hacktivists to keep issues that are important to all of us in the forefront of everything we do. Hacktivism is like free speech or free cocktail. Great stuff. Thank you very much, Scott McIntyre. Now you're getting a feel for some speed debating. Eugene Kaspersky speaking against hacktivists make the world a better place. Uh, definitely no, because, well, I don't want to have a long speech. Uh, technically, hacktivists, they're criminals. They violate the criminal code. So they must be arrested, and they don't do this world better place. Uh, well, except security, of course, because uh, the hacktivists, they stimulate... Uh, demand on security. So actually they are good for the profit of uh, companies which develop security solutions. So if you, if you say yes, it means that you care only about your profit, only about your wallet in your pocket, and not about the rest of the world. If you say yes, you have no moral. So please join me on the no side. Thank you very much, Eugene. I could listen to you say yes all day, I must admit. Final speaker for the affirmative, hacktivists make the world a better place, Charlie Miller. So, uh, no morals, that's a tough one to follow. Um, so I think this, this question just boils down to who's on the other side, right? So you've got hacktivists, and who are they against? Well, they're against, like, mega corporations, oppressive governments, and so whose side are you going to take? Are you going to take, you know, these, like, Hackers trying to free things and trying to, you know, make the world better or governments trying to oppress people? It's an easy question. 
Okay, thank you very much, Charlie. 26 seconds of magic. Great stuff. Our final speaker for this debate, hacktivists make the world a better place to disagree with the topic, Marcus Ranham. Right, well, it's, it's saying hacktivists make the world a better place is kind of like saying herpes gives your immune system an excellent workout. Um, which which is, literally, it is literally true, but, but the, the problem is that what you really want is you want social interactions to be within some kind of a control framework. And hacktivists are basically saying we're not going to do that. I mean, if you want to protest against the Church of Scientology, there are lots of ways that you can protest economically and politically against the Church of Scientology. Simply taking things into your own hands amounts to a heckler's veto. I am actually an advocate of free speech to the degree that I believe that even the Scientologists should be able to say whatever the hell stupid crap they want to. And if somebody tries to suppress them, they're actually my enemy because they're they're anti-free speech. Um, So I I really don't think it's true. I think that in a lot of cases, hacktivism amounts to an extortionate threat and a heckler's veto. Okay, thank you very much, Marcus. You guys have got a few seconds to decide which way you're going to vote. Some big issues discussed there. Everything from oppressive governments in the Arab Spring, suing Scientology, to the exercise benefits of herpes. And Adrian's, uh, Adrian Kovic's confessions that he's a break and enter specialist. We learned a lot about our speakers there. You've got a few seconds to panel in there for the affirmative or the negative. I presume I will then say you've got three, two, one, and miraculously point at the big screen before there's a reveal. Yeah, we are locking in there, and we will stop it there. A, the, a negative have won that by 64% of the vote to 35. So please give the negative a big round of applause on that first topic. That was Adrian Kovic. And, uh, uh, excuse me, it's also an indicator of the moral level in Australia and New yeah. Zealand. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much, Eugene. Okay, our next topic. Smartphones, the more capable, the more dangerous. Smartphones... The more capable, the more dangerous. Charlie, Adrian and Eugene will speak on the affirmative. Scott, Bill and Marcus will take the negative. Kicking off the smartphones, the more capable, the more dangerous. Charlie Miller. I'm glad this one is a moral-free question. So uh, smartphones, uh, this one's pretty easy. So I had this flip phone you know, about five or six years ago, and it, it dialed it. You could make a phone call with it, and that was it. So uh, you compare that to my iPhone I have in my pocket now. What do you think is more dangerous? Well, that's easy, right? On my iPhone, I have my mail. I have naked pictures of myself. I have text messages, lots of stuff. My flip phone didn't have that. So uh, there's more capability and more data on my smartphone than there was on my old flip phone. And so I think it's pretty obvious that you know, the naked pictures alone make it more powerful. We, we've already seen them. Well, not everyone has, Marcus. OK, thank you very much, Charlie. That, that, I'm learning more about you every moment. Uh, Scott McIntyre is going to refute the topic, smartphones, the more capable, the more dangerous. Take it away, Scott. Get me a bucket. I think I'm going to be sick. Um, the thought of him... Sorry. Yeah. Uh, right. So, oh, my... That which has been seen... No. So you say that smartphones are more dangerous. I would actually argue that if you were to throw that flip phone at someone, you're far more likely to take their head off than you are if you're going to give them your smartphone. Actually, I have a funny story about a smartphone. My wife managed to change her iCloud password accidentally yesterday, which had the power of logging her off of being online absolutely everywhere simultaneously. So you can imagine my surprise when she dropped off of Find My Friend. She dropped off of iMessage. I couldn't FaceTime her. It basically said, there's no such person as Nicole McIntyre. Got a little worried. So I tried sending an SMS. You remember those things? 
things. I barely do. Um, the point here is the power. The power that comes with a smartphone is absolutely incredible. And with that power comes responsibility. Nobody's debating that, but it also comes control. There are products in the marketplace like Silent Circle, which had PGP encryption around your text, your video, and your chats. You have the opportunity to use this portable device, this portable computer in your pocket for all of the power that you want. It's not a phone. Okay, thank you very much, Scott. On the affirmative, smartphones, the more capable, the more... Yeah, don't be shy. Give a round of applause if you like what you're hearing. Adrian, take up the affirmative case. Thank you. So when I first saw this topic, I, I wondered if it was a truism or not. Um, but then I guess being a security conference, I thought perhaps we'd, uh, we'd get one of our d debaters here saying that they could crack my Nokia 3110 more quickly than an iPhone 5 and perhaps, perhaps expose my all-time snake record uh, claims as a fraud. Um, but we haven't heard that so far. Um, so with... I'm going to go with the, uh, the, the, the guns don't kill people, people kill people argument um, to some degree and say with the evolution of a, of a better smartphone, of a more powerful smartphone, comes higher, higher risks, higher damages. And although we've heard about control there before and that's certainly valid, the people behind them um, are, are what, what goes hand in hand to make the smartphones more damaging. Um, as society doesn't um, uh, adjust quite so quickly to things like the fact that if you put a photo of yourself on the internet, it's there forever, or the fact that people can heckle you and what you say back is important, uh, that's what makes it dangerous. Uh, and with those smartphones and with that data uh, comes that danger. Thank you very much, Adrian. Bill Cayley, you're taking the negative. Smartphones, the more capable, the more dangerous. This time with a microphone, Bill Cayley. Yes, here we go. Look, important, there's absolutely no way it's more dangerous. Why? Very simple. Hello, Queenslanders, okay? Your average age is 36.4 years. Are by any Tassie people here? Your oldies, you're 40, over 40. What's important about that? We're the important people. We aren't using these super smartphones. They're not dangerous, not dangerous to us, maybe somebody else. But I mean, those dumb phones, we put them in the box, we send them across to Africa, oh, oh, oh places like that. So honestly, let's, let's think about it. In actual fact, they're not dangerous at all, because very simply, we of mature age simply are not the target. They're not dangerous to us at all. They don't want us, so they can't be dangerous if they don't want us. They're after you young guys. Hey, thank you very much, Bill. Eugene Kaspersky is going to be the final speaker. Smartphones, the more capable, the more dangerous. Take it away, Eugene. Uh, that's a very simple question. Of course, they do the world. It's a dangerous innovation, as many other innovations. Uh, and it's the same cycle. Innovation, technologies, product services, we enjoy the benefits from that. Then we recognize it's dangerous, then it's security. Uh, it, it, in the same circle with many other technologies. But I didn't say that smartphones make the world worse. They make the world better. They are dangerous, but we enjoy the smartphones. Uh, so I think that, well, very soon when my seven years old Sony Ericsson will finally die, I will switch to the smartphone <laughs> and there is no option. And it's the uh, same about every technology, about computers, about transportation, about power, power plants, about everything, including the iPods. Uh, by the way, who's that? Oh, I, I don't know. I don't know because it's here, it's not ours. Any idea? Who's that? I don't know. But this is dangerous too. Thank you, Eugene. Yes, you could prove your side of the argument. If you can hack into that and tell me whose it is, you've proved your point. Okay. Marcus Ranham is going to be the final speaker. Smartphones, the more capable, the more dangerous. 
Well, I really don't understand what the issue is. I mean, my old phone number was uh, Clearfield 413, and, you know, I'd call the operator, and I'd say, collect, connect me to Clearfield 413, and she would plug the plug and plug it in over there, and it just worked. And I upgraded to a smartphone with the little rotary um, thing, and it's incredibly convenient. It's fantastic, and it frees up all the operators having to sit there and, and, and manually switch all the calls. So I think this is a tremendous step forward. I mean, there's absolutely nothing wrong with smartphones, and they make the world a much better place. I mean, as long as you don't do something fucking stupid like make it into a general purpose computer, you should be just fine. <laughs> okay. You've got 15 seconds to log your votes while you consider some of the issues discussed. There more than anything out of that debate. Adrian, I just hope that when you say my all-time snake record, that's not a nickname you have for some naked photo of yourself on the phone. But anyway, probably shouldn't have said that. Tough crowd. Let's move on. Have you logged your votes? The topic was smartphones. The more capable, the more dangerous. The affirmative were Charlie, Adrian and Eugene. The negative was Scott, Bill and Marcus. This is what you thought. Give you a couple more seconds for final votes to log in, but the, the, neg the, the affirmative are looking good there. The affirmative are looking good. It's been won by the four team. Congratulations. That's Charlie. Adrian. And Eugene, we move now on to topic number three. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the one with a bit of a twist. You've never seen this before in speed debating. I'm very, very excited. The topic is America spies on China. China spies on America. APT1 did nothing wrong. It's my pleasure to introduce our affirmative team. We've got on the affirmative Charlie Miller, Jim Watson... Ah, uh, sorry, uh, Jim Watson is Ross Ford, of course. Charlie Miller, Ross Ford and Bill Hargestad up against the negative team of Bill Hargestad, Eugene Kaspersky and Marcus Ranham. Bill is such an expert in this area, he's arguing both sides of the topic. So, <laughs> I can't wait. Taking away, kicking off for the affirmative, America spies on China, China spies on America, APT1 did nothing wrong. Take it away. Charlie Miller. My mind is blown that he's arguing both sides. I can't continue. Um, so let me tell you about uh, my personal history. So I went to work for the National Security Agency. Uh, I didn't really know much about computers. And then I worked there five years. And uh, now I do know a lot about computers. So you, I can't tell you what I did there, but you can figure out that it had something to do with computers. Mm -hmm. So. Um, this has been going on for some time, and you know, behind closed doors, governments hack governments all the time. And APT1 was like kids playing Lego blocks. You know, it was like no big deal, and it's it's just not even worth talking about. Really, it's just you know, people don't talk about it because the, the people who do it don't talk. But but it's been going on, and it's it's nothing new. Okay, thank you very much, Charlie Miller. I get the impression, Charlie works in computers, if you know what I'm saying. First speaker for the negative, Bill Hargestad, take it away. Thank you very much. Basically what I said is the Chinese military, they got it right because they were exactly following what the Chinese Communist Party wanted them to do. Granted, it was simplistic. I would think that the larger issue may be an indicator that this is not nation state, but it's actual an indicator and possible evidence of cyber criminality. 
So when uh, you had mentioned that it's building blocks or kitties playing with blocks, I think that's absolutely correct. But uh, in this case, they were following orders, and they did what they were told to do, and they achieved purpose. One thing you should know about the Chinese, if you came to my presentation, is APT-1 was not discovered for some time, much like the Connecticut attacks, which went on for months to years before they were discovered. So the one thing I would leave you with is, if you're thinking about defeating the Chinese, which you won't be able to do, look at two-byte binary code and find out if you can defeat that. Thank you very much. Xie Okay, thank you very much, Bill. Now, I'm about to throw to you, Ross. You might want to rebut some of what Bill said there. Bear in mind, he is the third speaker on your team as well, so don't be too nasty on him, okay? Ross Ford agreeing that APT1 did nothing wrong. Take it away. Totally agree with that. Look, if it wasn't for the fact that this got out, we wouldn't have been aware of it. And I think, you know, as a, uh, as a, a layperson, um, the fact that uh, we are finding out about this and that we've got an audience like this here as well too who's able to help defend all of our assets here, it's absolutely critical. The average Australian has got no idea what this means to them and it's really about um, just having that uh, greater awareness, being aware that we need to have a greater uh, respect for security and that it's the professionals in this room that are helping to make this a secure place. So absolutely getting that message out was the best thing that could have happened. Okay, thank you very much, Ross. Eugene Kaspersky is going to speak against the topic. APT1 did nothing wrong. Take it away, Eugene. Uh, yes, yeah, so the United States spy on China. Yes, China spies on the United States. I'm Russian, so what? <laughs> <laughs> well, seriously speaking, uh, in the cyberspace, it's a very short distance from espionage attacks to cyber weapons. Uh, with traditional weapons, it's a different espionage attacks, and, and sabotage, traditional sabotage, traditional weapons, it's a big distance, it's a big difference. In cyberspace, it's very easy to upgrade espionage attack with a cyber, cyber warhead. Uh, Stuxnet is an example of that. Stuxnet started as an espionage attack and at the end that was cyber weapon. So, in a cyberspace, every espionage attack makes you more close to the real war. And Australia, it was in the past, it was almost out of the military the conflicts mainstreams in the internet there are no distance no difference even if you think that australia is almost disconnected from the internet uh, well the rest of the world is disconnected from australia anyway that's enough to kill your country okay thank you very much eugene now here to rebut the negative speak speech of course he's the final speaker of the affirmative so to rip into what the negative said which of course included himself even i'll admit this is a bit weird take it away closing for the affirmative bill hagestad anyone believe that believes that it they did get it right, is just totally misinformed. In fact, they got caught. So isn't that an indication that the operation was a failure? Anybody that's been involved in military, whether it's intelligence, espionage, combat, doesn't matter. If you fail, then you have somehow undermined the, the command that you're under. I will tell you that this all stems back to Wen Jiabao's expose by the New York Times. Had that not happened, APT-1 would continue unabated. So in its essence, it was a huge failure. They did not get it right, and they never will. That's all I have to say. Thank you very much, Bill. Final speaker for the negative. America spies on China. China spies on America. APT-1 did nothing wrong. Over to you, Marcus Ranham. Well, really the problem is we wouldn't, we wouldn't complain about it if we didn't think it was wrong. And so then the problem becomes 
really it's a question of which way the fire is going, right? If, if we were doing it to them, they would be unhappy with us. And if they would be unhappy with us in that circumstance, we should be unhappy with them if they're doing it back to us. This is a simple moral calculus. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's basically uh, uh, Kant's, Kant's basic principle, which amounts to do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. And the problem becomes one of whether or not you want to live in an environment in which cooperation is a norm, or whether uh, one is which, in which crime and non-cooperation is the norm. And so I think we have to say that what APT1 was doing was wrong by definition of, of what we understand wrong to be. Now, it's easy to make these morally facile arguments like everybody's doing it, but, but again, that, that rejects the notion of what right and wrong are. If you want to be a moral nihilist, be my guest, but you really can't live in this world that way. Okay, there you go. Espionage, cyber warfare, moral nihilism. How do we vote on this one, audience? America spies on China. China spies on America. APT1 did nothing wrong. If you agree with Charlie, Ross and Bill, you vote for the affirmative. If you agree with Marcus, Eugene and Bill, you vote for the negative. <laughs> Let's have a look at how the votes come on this one. Ooh, it's overwhelming for the affirmative at the moment. Three quarters of all votes. I'll give you a few more seconds to lock in any stray votes. So our winners are the affirmative team. Congratulations. That's Charlie Miller. That's Ross. And one way or another, it was always going to be you, Bill. Well done. <laughs> Topic number four for this afternoon. Bitcoin is morally bankrupt. Bitcoin is morally bankrupt. Marcus, Ross and Eugene, you'll take the affirmative. Scott, Bill and Charlie, you'll take the negative that Bitcoin is morally bankrupt. Marcus Ranham, take it away. Uh, the term seniory applies to government's right to produce coinage. And actually, it is probably pr production of coinage and raising armies are probably the two most important things, or the, regu the regulation of money and the regulation of violence are probably the two most important things that the state does. And so the reason that Bitcoin is, is morally bankrupt and represents a, a threat to statehood uh, is it essentially bypasses that system by coming up with a an, an non-government regulated free-floating currency. And this is, a fascinating, this is a fascinating idea, but anybody who actually doesn't want to see their economy eventually getting jerked around by outsiders is going to need to think about whether or not they want to support this kind of thing. Because the problem is, if Bitcoin eventually really takes off, and becomes a currency in its own right, people will be able to do things like, like run the dollar up against Bitcoin and drive the dollar down if Bitcoin's worth more. If you want to live in that kind of world, knock yourself out, but I don't think it's a very smart idea. Okay, thank you very much, Marcus Ranham. Scott McIntyre taking the negative to Bitcoin is morally bankrupt. I think it's kind of interesting that just before we came on stage, Marcus pointed out that in the United States, this is National Masturbation Month. So when you're talking about being jerked around, I think his argument takes care of that for most of you. So I think it's not Bitcoin that's morally bankrupt. Let's talk about the bankers. Let's talk about the global financial crisis. Let's talk about the mess that the current system has got us in. Let's talk about now options. Let's look at a new way to deal with the economy. You, I, we're all consumers. We want options. We don't want to be stuck in this particularly narrowly 
poorly defined version of profit for people who obviously are not very fiscally responsible because they keep screwing around with our money, taking these bets, playing with derivatives. And you had some great quotes on derivatives last night, but I can't remember them because there was a little bit of alcohol involved. Um, so this is really just the beginning. Bitcoin is the beginning. We're looking at a wonderful world of mobile payments. We're looking at all sorts of different options that's not really a moral issue other than the fact that it is about choice. We haven't had a choice for a long time. Two years ago when I sat on this stage, Bitcoin was still fairly new around Australia, and I said, this is going to be kind of interesting. We need to keep our eyes on it. And here it is now, a debate topic. It is time for change, and I'm not talking about the stuff in the bottom of your pocket. Okay, thank you very much, Scott. Ross Ford, you're arguing that Bitcoin is morally bankrupt. Take it away, Ross. Thanks. Uh, we, we, you know, for 5,000 years, we've had a, a monetary system of one sort or another for trading between countries, and it's generally worked out those... Um, whatever those exchange rates might be. You know, we've, we've uh, overlaid that now with uh, having very complex uh, uh, monetary systems. We've got whole uh, payment mechanisms over the top with credit cards, with uh, PayPal and the like. You know, how much, of the, how much of the world actually understands what Bitcoin is right now? I'd say it's a relatively small amount. And do we need another system if we've got such a huge um, divide there with people who... Uh, don't know about this thing, introducing something. We've got enough troubles in the um, financial system right now with people being ripped off, having credit card details taken and everything else. Do we need yet another system in order to give uh, the criminals and the drug dealers and everyone else another way to transact between countries? And ultimately, which is going to be the organisation, which is the international Bitcoin organisation, which controls it on a global basis? Thank you very much, Ross. Bill Cayley, to disagree with the topic that Bitcoin is morally bankrupt. I'll talk about bankrupt. This is my car. Down here in the, in the bottom left, right, right corner there, it's a thing called Wave. The other day, I was buying some stuff at my local down, down, prices are, you know what I'm talking about, that place. And what got you? I said, I, I, I want to put my PIN number in, I want to put my chip card in, I want to be safe and secure. And the girl said, it's too late. You've waved. I said, no, I didn't. She said, yes, you've waved. That's morally bankrupt. I had absolutely no choice whatsoever. Bitcoin, we've been there before. We used to call it eCash. For those who are from, anyone from Netherlands here? Yeah, remember eCash? We've been there before. It worked, it worked, it worked extremely well. There's no problems whatsoever. This is the main problem. We need alternatives to what is currently being done right now in that financial industry where, in actual fact, they do things like that. And that is the major problem we've got. Go Bitcoin. Okay, thank you very much, Bill. Final speaker for the affirmative, Bitcoin is morally bankrupt, Eugene Kaspersky. Uh, well, uh, which, kind of, uh, which kind of opinion you ex do you expect from the security guy uh, for 25 years in the IT area? So, well, actually, of course, it's, uh, it's yes. Uh, simply because uh, it's a place which makes cyber criminals much more, uh, not just cyber criminals, any kinds of criminals much more happy. And uh, well, the financial, or the system which pretends to be a financial could be designed in a more safe and secure way. Uh, so, well, actually, I like this idea. So, I like this ideas of the digital monies. But please, if you had a little bit more security there, that could be much more better. Uh, that's why I agree that this technology is, this service is uh, morally bankrupt. But at the same time, do you have any idea about some visible innovation technology which is not morally bankrupt? Thank you very much, Eugene. Charlie Miller is going to finish this one off for us, arguing that Bitcoin is not morally bankrupt. Take it away, Charlie. So 
asking me a question about morality, I just don't understand that. So, you know, I, I'm the guy who got kicked out of all the developer programs, and I still think I did the right thing. So keep, keep that in mind with what I say. Um, so, so the strength of Bitcoin is that it allows you to make payments online anonymously, which is something you can't really do otherwise. And, you know, I, I'm sick of governments having the ability to track everything I do. I want online privacy, which, you know, is just a nice way of saying porn without people knowing. But still, I, I don't want the government to know my particular habits. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Charlie. How do we go on this one? A, a threat to statehood versus freedom of choice, a 5,000-year-old financial system versus happy drug dealers. Bitcoin is morally bankrupt is the topic. Vote for or against. You've got five seconds. Marcus, Ross and Eugene on the affirmative. Scott, Bill and Charlie on the negative. And this is the way you voted. Oh, it's been won by the against. Our closest debate yet. But congratulations, Scott, Bill and Charlie. Topic number five. Google Glass is the end of privacy. Google Glass is the end of privacy. Adrian, Bill and Marcus for, Ross, Charlie and Scott against. Take it away, Adrian. Google Glass is the end of privacy. Is Google Glass the end of privacy? Well, yes, it is. But is, I guess it is the beginning of the end or the end of the end. And I'd probably say it's somewhere in the middle. And I guess, whose privacy are we talking about? Uh, when, we've, when I walk around with, with my mobile phone, no one realises that I'm a, I'm a nerd. No one realises that I may be recording things. But if I've got a big, ugly pair of glasses on with a, with a stupid-looking camera in the front, of course you're going to know that I'm recording things, and of course you're going to know that I'm a bit of a nerd. So I would say that's certainly the end of my privacy. Um, but in terms of, well, you know, there's a device here that sees everything I see, that knows everything I know, but more importantly, it sees everything about you. So in terms of your privacy, um, your privacy is in my hands, and, that, and that's facilitated by this device that can see everything that I see. For all I know, half of you could be playing handsies under the table, you could be nodding off, um, you could be playing with your phones, you could be recording this. I don't know, but if I was to look at my Google Glass later on, I'd be able to tell and maybe I'd be disturbed. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Adrian there, arguing I think the Google Glass is the middle or the beginning of the end of privacy. Can I suggest, Adrian, if you'd labour under the misapprehension that no one realises you're a bit of a nerd, the, uh, the semantic t-shirt might be a bit of a giveaway, but anyway. Ross, leading off the negative, take it away. Thanks, Adam. Look, we've got choice in this. We're consumers. We don't have to buy these things if we don't want. Who gives a damn? If I don't want to have my privacy um, interrupted or anything, just don't buy the bloody things. Take your glasses off. Well, there you go, Ross. Nice work. <laughs> Bill Cayley, you're arguing that Google Glass is the end of privacy. Absolutely, but get over it. Scott McNeely... 1999 said, well, you know, that's it. Get over it. It's the end of privacy. Absolutely. But however, I want version two. Very similar to those airports. You know the ones you go into and they take your clothes off? Is that the next Google product? Google Glass with X-ray vision? Then we're really going to have version two loss of privacy. But in actual fact, you know, there is no problem about that. We've, we have lost that privacy with Google Glass. It's all gone because all I need to do now is get my big data. Get my big data moving on that, add to the front, 
do, do analysis, find out what I want, find out who, who you are, I'm talking down, I'm walking down the street, it's all over. A dear friend of mine, Dorothy Denning, did that many, many years ago. She said, basically, you give us big enough data, we'll narrow your privacy right there. You've gone. You've gone. Add Google to it, it's all over. Okay, thank you very much, Bill. Charlie Miller's going to give the negative. Google Glass is the end of privacy. Over to you, Charlie. Google Glasses is not the end of privacy because privacy ended a long time ago. So I have an iPhone and it's got a GPS built into it. Everyone knows where I, you know, the government or at least AT&T knows where I'm going. Uh, I'm happy to have all my email stored on Google servers. I'm happy to use Facebook so someone can see all my friends and, uh, you know, I even tweet occasionally. So, uh, you know, we've all, we all gave up our privacy for free web services a few years ago, and we're not getting it back. Okay, Marcus Ranham, you're the final affirmative speaker. Though I think we've had a couple of affirmative speakers on the negative on this one. Well, I'm, I'm really disappointed to hear such facile and defeatist arguments coming from the other side. I mean, if you thought that Google's mapping wireless networks and probing people's wireless access points and sticking that stuff into a database without permission was a bad idea, you're going to love Google Glass. I mean, Big Brother... Big Brother could not order anything better than this. You've got to think, when you're fielding a technology that could be ubiquitous, you've got to think about what the potential downstream consequences of this are. And one of those is that this is a perfect cop technology. Add facial recognition to it. Everyone who's wearing Google Glass is now identifying everybody that they see. That can all go back into a central database. The cops can put an overlay over there with a little star over your head saying this is someone who the Homeland Security people want to pick up. That's the future that's being built. And I'm really shocked that the otherwise intelligent geeks at Google are going and building something so fucking stupid and dangerous. And, they, and basically they're going, wow, look, isn't this cool? Sometimes technology is not what you want to field. Okay, thank you very much, Marcus Ranham. <clears throat> Final speaker for the negative Google Glass is the end of privacy. Take it away, Scott McIntyre. Actually, he kind of made my point for me. Google Glass is in the end of privacy. Google is the end of privacy. I think we've already accepted that. However, Google Glass actually has a very positive influence. Some of you may know this, but my formal background is actually in psychology. And the mere fact that we might have a technology that can help people with Alzheimer's or other brain injuries recognize the world around them, recognize their family members, be able to interact with society in a more productive way, that's not the end of privacy. That is the beginning of a new way of life. Now, there are going to be issues to address, and certainly walking down the street looking like a moron is one of those issues. <laughs> But people are already doing that. If you walk down a major city these days, people are looking down at their phones, stammering along the edge of the path, and end up going into traffic and or each other. So really, it's not Google Glass is the end of privacy. It's going to bring around a whole new generation of people that are able to do things and be more aware. It's going to be about enhancing awareness over your information, over your friend's information, and the people you meet. If you don't know what's out there, that's where the real risk is. This is going to shed the light on a lot of privacy issues, but that's good. It's time for that. It's not the end. It's the beginning. Okay. Thank you very much, Scott McIntyre. There you have your two cases laid out. Vote for the motion if you believe you've been convinced by the panel that Google Glass is the end of privacy. Vote against if you're convinced by the opposition. The affirmative was Adrian, Bill and Marcus. The negative was Ross, Charlie and Scott. This is how you voted. Oh. 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 I'll give you another five seconds. Oh. 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 I'm going to lock that in. That is 51.6%. It's been won by the negative. Congratulations, Ross, Charlie, 
And Scott, that's the closest one we've so, had, I think. Uh, do we agree that that's the middle of the privacy? It's the beginning of the end of the middle. It's the middle. We are halfway through the beginning of the end of privacy. Absolutely, Eugene. Let's move on to our final topic this afternoon. The topic is that Mao Zedong said the only real defence is active defence. In IT security, it's no different. Now, you might not be surprised with a quote from Mao that Bill's going to be featuring in this debate in a particularly good way. He's the lead speaker for both teams. So Bill, followed by Marcus and Bill Cayley, will give the affirmative. Bill for the negative, followed by Adrian and Ross, will be the negative. So I'm reminding you, Bill, this is your affirmative side of the argument for this. I'd like you to start by agreeing with the topic. In IT security, it's no different to that aphorism from Mao. Take it away, Bill. Yes, sir. Mao Zedong, back in 1948, saw that there was a challenge to the current political regime, Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists. And he took the full measure to make sure that the Communist Party would take the rule away from that nationalistic party. And in doing so, that full measure was to enlist Japanese mercenaries to go against his own people. So you can imagine his ragtag band of peasants that were following the Long March, which became eventually the Eighth Route Army and the PLA, needed a little bit of military muscle in order to push their own fellow countrymen off to that second state now known as Thailand. The one thing that they did not plan on, as you would have to also anticipate in securing your IT enterprise, is the fact that no one is really taking this seriously. He took it seriously, and that was armed conflict. Because in armed conflict, there is no second place. Because you know what second place is? It's a frickin' body bag. So you need to take it seriously. Okay, thank you very much, Bill. Hagestar getting off the affirmative to a flying start there. Now to refute everything that Bill has just said, leading off the negative, Bill Hagestad, over to you, Bill. Yeah, that's a bunch of crap, what I just told you. <laughs> <laughs> because you know what an expert is, right? Everyone knows what an expert is? It's a drip under pressure. So, a little bit of a drip sitting up here. Nonetheless, Mao Zedong did not necessarily realize that by establishing and setting an example for the rest of modern China that they needed to take the full measure, he forgot to look at history because prior to that point, foreign troops had been stationed on the mainland. And in doing so, he forgot to make sure that as the PLA moved forward into modern times, that they remembered that the way that they're going to defend themselves is not by preventing, well, they'll be able to do it militarily, preventing China, uh, foreign troops from being stationed on Chinese land. They wanted to make sure that they had the first mover advantage in the internet to protect the Middle Kingdom against all enemies, foreign and domestic. But remember, as in war, there is no second place, because second place is what? I believe it was a friggin', a friggin body, bag. body bag. Correct, Bill. Well played. Sure, okay, sure. Marcus Ranham's going to continue the affirmative. Marcus, you are agreeing with Chairman Mao's thoughts. Yes. Well, I mean, Mao was talking about actual military engagements, not, you know, something absurd like uh, engagements in computer networks. And in that situation, the only real defense is an active defense. You also have to remember that Mao didn't really have an army initially, um, so he was engaged in guerrilla warfare. So you have to basically be fighting a, a maneuvering defense of falling back because you don't, you don't have the ability to take the field and try to hold the field against a, a conventional attack. But, the, you know, argumentum ad Mao is always very difficult. You have to remember, when you're saying that Mao was right about something, this is the genius who brought you the Cultural Revolution. Thank you very much, Marcus. Adrian Kovic is going to refute the topic. Take it away, Adrian. Yeah, I'm not sure how to follow that one. Um, but I, in to, in to summarise, um, IT security is very different 
Um, the, the landscape's different. We're not talking about China in the, after the Second World War. We're not talking about uh, a, a single adversary. We're not talking about a, a single landscape. Uh, with IT security, it is very different. Uh, I heard someone while we were here saying that uh, active defence is more like trying to, to uh, build a better rat trap when, when you should be protecting your cheese. Uh, with IT security, it's more about being able to know the situational awareness, uh, know about uh, what normal looks like, and know about the threats. It's not about chasing shadows, and it's not about guessing what you should be doing and guessing how you should be trying to, trying to defeat your enemies. It's all about being able to protect what's valuable to you uh, and be able to mount a, an appropriate defence. Chasing at shadows or, or trying to catch uh, enemies that you may or may not know uh, how they work or what they are isn't the answer, and that's why active defence is not, is not the answer here for IT security. Okay, thank you very much, Adrian. Bill Cayley, you're the final speaker for own, uh, the only real defence is active defence. In IT security, it's no different. Absolutely true. Sivis pacem parabellum. All you Latin people over there, right? If you want to have peace, you have to prepare for war. Mao said it. So also did quite a few other people. And that, by the way, as you know, is the motto of the Royal Navy. But let's go back a bit. Don't listen to Bill Kelly. Don't listen to me. I'm going to quote something. Here you are. In order that His Majesty's subjects may do their utmost to capture the ships and vessels belonging to the citizens of the United States and to destroy their commerce. Where did that come from? Hey, hold on. It's all there. It's all there. That, by the way, is 200 years ago. Literally, 1812, a note from Earl Baffist to Governor Macquarie, any, any Mexicans here, uh, Governor Macquarie in New South Wales, saying, this is it, we're at war with the United States, and this is what we're going to do. But please note something. It was extended to destroy their commerce. Mao was right. OK, thank you very much, Bill. The final speaker for the negative on this topic... Ross Ford. Take it away, Ross. Thanks, um, Adam. Since Bill uh, cancelled Build Out, uh, I think the only way we're going to win this is by being a ventriloquist. Oh, so, Bill, if you just pick up that microphone there and, and say, Bill, what do you think on this, just finishing this one out? There is no right answer. OK. So, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> we all should learn Chinese if we're going to be able to defeat this because those threats keep coming. And every time I try and think that it's over... I get an organization like Osser calling me up and asking me to give them the latest, greatest on it. The challenge is, is that it is persistent, it is a threat, and it is advanced. I didn't say the acronym because I'm going to throw up in the back of my mouth if I say it. <laughs> the challenge is these are the Chinese, they are the Middle Kingdom, and they're going to rule us. Keep going, you've got 10 seconds. 10 seconds? Why? It says 13. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much, Ross. Well done. Okay, there you go. Your affirmative team was Bill, Marcus and Bill Cayley. Your negative team was Bill, Ross and Adrian. You've got a few seconds to tell me your votes. This is the final topic of the session. Before I'll then reveal how all of our speakers went in percentage terms across the number of debates in which they participated. On this final debate, this is the way you voted. Okay, the negatives seem to have got that one reasonably confidently, so congratulations to Bill, to Adrian and to Ross. So just tabulating up now, we've got... Wasn't it also Mal that said that you want to control the person who counts the ballots? 
Maybe we could talk afterwards. Okay. I have some Bitcoin. Did you know I'm... <laughs> You're trying to bribe me with Bitcoin. Okay. That, <clears throat> fascinating the way this is all panned out because different number of speakers in different number of debates. I want to thank Marcus in particular for stepping in at the last minute. He took up a lot of the slack left by the absence of uh, one of the speakers at the last minute. So on at least three topics was debating something he hadn't planned to debate. Just the way it went on the day, he only picked up one of his six debates correctly. So Marcus has finished on 16%, but well done. Bill Cayley on 20%. Eugene Kaspersky on 50%. Scott McIntyre on 50%. Ross Ford and Adrian Covage have come out with 75% win rates. Charlie Miller, who confessed to a lot of things today, and I think won you over, came out in 80% of his debates he was the winner. And then, depending which way you look at it, Bill scores either 0, 50 or 100%. I'm not really sure. I sort of average all three of them. I don't know what went on in that case. But please, give all of our speakers a big round of applause. That was fascinating and illuminating stuff. And Rob Moffat's going to come forward and make a few closing comments. Over to you, Rob.